Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, it's important that we are rightly related to God in terms of fellowship and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Scripture teaches that when believers sin, they don't lose salvation, but they do breach that fellowship with God in the ongoing sanctifying ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, where he is producing spiritual growth in our lives. So the recovery principle is simple. It is to admit or acknowledge our sins to God, and 1 John 1, 9 tells us that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we begin first by having silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, nine to make sure you're in fellowship, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that your grace is unmeasured and unbounded, that we can never outdo your grace and that your grace will always provide everything we need in order to live the spiritual life to execute your plan for our life. Father, the ultimate reality for us is to align ourselves with your plan, and we do that through a study of your word. That is the study of your word that is the highest form of worship, for it is in the study of your word that we are forced to meditate upon what you have done, to think through the principles that you've given in your word, think through that which you have revealed to us in light of our own thinking and in light of our own lives. It's not always easy, but it is always profitable, and it always is directed toward the goal of exchanging the human viewpoint uh, ideas that so often invade our thinking for the eternal, timeless principles of divine viewpoint revealed in your word. Help us this morning as we think through these issues in relation to worship and singing that we may glorify you more consistently in our corporate worship as a local church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In our study of Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we're taken to the heavenly throne room where we see the worship of the uh, four living creatures, the 24 elders who are representatives from the church already uh, already raptured, already rewarded, 
present in the throne of God. We see the angelic hosts gathered around the throne of God in in worship and praise. By the time we get to the end of chapter 5, we see the entire angelic chorus singing an antiphonal response with the uh, 24 elders as they praise the Lamb of God because He alone is worthy of all honor and glory and power. And so as we come to this in the uh, shift between chapter 4 and 5, we're taking a little detour, as it were, to focus on this doctrine of worship in the Scriptures. Part of worship is involves singing in the corporate worship of the local church. Worship, unfortunately, today has come to be almost used as a synonym for singing, which is totally false, and so it has led to some real distortions. And it's important for us to talk about these things. Other problems have come in, as we've noted in the last several weeks, into what we would call uh, corporate worship of the church. There's been a radical shift in the last uh, 30 or 40 years in what takes place in the, in the local church. If you go back 50 years ago, you saw certain things that were going on in, in most churches that were very similar, even though there were differences between a more informal Baptist church or perhaps a Plymouth Brethren church and a more formal high church of uh, Anglican church or Methodist church worship where there would be a little more liturgy. Nevertheless, there were certain things that were were in common to most church worship. Today, they also have many things in common, but they've all changed. Everything's different, and what dominates most of them is contemporary Christian music. And many of these churches have contemporary services, and they sing the same, same they sing the same songs, they sing the same choruses. Uh, they've been the doctrinal content's been watered down so much that you could go to a contemporary service at a Lutheran church or a contemporary service at a at a PCA church or a contemporary uh, worship service at a at any number of independent churches, and you'd be singing the same. Uh, choruses that sound biblical because they have biblical terms and phrases, but yet the doctrinal content of those words has has really changed. And uh, in the old days, if you're if you remember, you're old enough to go back to the 60s or earlier, and you've been in other churches, you would note that if you were at a Baptist church, you had a hymnal that was distinctive to Baptists. If you were in a Presbyterian church, you would have a hymnal that was distinctive to Presbyterians. If you went to a Roman Catholic church, they had another hymnal altogether. And today, in in contemporary Christian worship, uh, that's all sort of disappeared, and they all sing the same thing. So it's part of this ecumenical movement, watered-down doctrine. Scripture says that the unity of the church, as we sang in the church's one foundation, is there's one faith, one doctrine. Unity is a unity of what? Unity of the faith. That it's not unity despite the faith. It is a unity of doctrine. And when there is doctrinal differences, there are ecclesiastical divisions. And that's important because of the importance of, of doctrine and keeping that as a priority. Within this movement, as I've noted in the past, you have really two issues. The first issue is, is the issue of music. The second is the issue of the words. The music and the words. I've spent a lot of time talking about Music and how music isn't um, amoral, as they say, or neutral, which is their contention, that you can take any piece of music and just attach Christian words to it, and you've sort of sanctified or baptized the music, and now you can use that 
in, in church, and this is a way that they also look at music as evangelistic. That's not a biblical concept, but that's at the very core of what's called the church growth movement, which also has its roots in the same cultural, ecclesiastical, primarily charismatic milieu of the late 60s and early 70s. It's interesting how all this stuff kind of goes back to the same matrix of groups and ideas and thinkers that were dominating at the end of the 60s, which as many people, secular secularists as well as church historians, recognize when American culture made a mega shift in terms of its worldview. A lot of people will trace it to, to 1963 and a number of different things that happened in 1963. It wasn't that there was some radical explosion or ideological atomic bomb that went off at that time. It's that it finally became apparent that that which had been the worldview that had been dominating Western civilization and America for the past 150 to 200 years died by uh, 1963. It was a slow, long, lingering death, but it was clear by 1964 that we were entering into a totally new era. Today we use the term postmodernism to refer to that, a time of, of intellectual as well as moral relativism. And so this has impacted uh, the arts. It's impacted music. Uh, those trends were already there, and I've shown how the change in music affected the change, I mean, the change in ideas, in philosophy. Ideas have consequences. The change in ideas changed the way people looked at reality and the way they expressed it in art and the way they expressed it in music. Last time, just for a brief review, I don't have the chart here, but last time I talked about how there was a major ideological shift that occurred in the late 1700s with the philosopher Immanuel Kant. And prior to Kant, people believed that, in theory, there was such a thing as objective, knowable knowledge. Now, they might disagree and argue amongst themselves as to how you got there. You had rationalists, you had empiricists, you had others who came from different perspectives. Uh, Descartes had his philosophy, John Locke had his philosophy, Barclay had his philosophy. Uh, David Hume came along with his skepticism and basically said, you can't get there, you can't get to any certain knowledge of truth on the basis of any of these systems. Woe is us, we're just locked into skepticism. Well, man can't live with skepticism. So Kant came along and uh, Immanuel Kant said, well, we have to live as if there is truth. We may not know it, but we can know something about it, but we only know what we perceive about it. So instead of having an objective truth outside of us, that was knowable, man now only knew what he perceived. So your perception would be one way, and your perception might be something else. So knowledge began to become internalized. And I tried to show a couple of videos last time. We got bogged down because as I tried to run them, uh, I was running them off the Internet, and now that we're doing live streaming video of all of the classes here, uh, our bandwidth just got hosed up. And... Uh, <laughs> With all of the practice, all of the rehearsal ahead of time to make sure it would work, we weren't streaming at that time. So I'm going to try uh, one, one more, one more time, and try to save this to my disk if I can get there. That did not work, did it? Let me try one more thing. See if I can get. That's not it. 
Okay, we're going to... I had a glitch before I got up here, and... See if that will work. There we go. Okay. This is a clip, if it opens, in Windows Player, so we'll cross our fingers. This was a... The reason this is important is this is the uh, work that was done by John Cage. had John Cage last week, and... Uh, There we go. And one of his, he's kind of the end result of a lot of this. Okay, can't play the file. I've tried it four times. I'm going to give up. I'll just tell you what it says. What happens with this, with this uh, television announcer who's setting the stage for this four minutes and 33 seconds is that he says this is the first time it's ever been played by a whole orchestra. When John Cage first performed it, he came out on stage, he sat down at a piano, he closed the lid, and he did nothing for 4 minutes and 33 seconds. All you heard in, was the noise of the audience, the sounds of the concert hall. And so that left it up to everybody to make the music whatever they wanted it to be. In other words, now we've gone to complete and total subjectivity on the meaning of music and interpretation of the music. What this guy said so clearly in his introduction was that they were excited about having a full orchestra perform this, four minutes and 33 seconds of silence, because it was being broadcast over uh, television, and so now there would be hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of other individual subjective interpretations of the silence. So you see music by the this time as it reaches its con- ultimate conclusion, working out the implications of Kant's uh, thinking is that the meaning becomes totally subjective. And I had another YouTube video there, and if you want it, you can find these. Just go to YouTube and, and uh, Google John Cage, and you'll pull, or search for John Cage, and you can pull them up and watch them for yourself. But he specifically connects what he was doing to Kant. I want you to hear that because people come along and say, well, you're just kind of making too much out of all this. No, these people understood exactly what they were doing with their music, and they understood precisely how it connected back to these philosophical ideological shifts. Now, my point in all of that was simply to let you understand that we live in a world today where meaning of any text, whether it's a musical text, whether it's a visual representation of art, or whether it is a written piece of literature, meaning is now determined completely and exclusively by the reader, the observer, the listener. In other words, when it comes to, for example, the text of Scripture and hermeneutics, it no longer matters what the writer intended. What matters is what it means to you. And, of course, the most egregious example of this is what happens across the land in many Sunday school classes on Sunday morning when the teacher comes in and sits down and says, well, today we get out our Sunday school quarterly and we're studying Psalm 113. What does that mean to you? And everybody shares their ignorance and nobody studied it and understands the background. It also shows up politically because in the political environment, when you come to the Supreme Court, we now interpret the Constitution as a living document. And that means that we can assign meanings to it today that were not in the minds of the original authors of the Constitution. In other words, meaning is now completely slipped its anchor from objectivity, whether we're talking about the words of a hymn or the 
music that accompanies it so that everything now becomes subjective. Well, the way that impacts where corporate worship has gone in the last 30 or 40 years is with an emphasis on on subjectivity and creating the right kind of mindset with the music. That's So we have two things that have happened historically in the 20th century is you have an external enemy. The church always has two problems, the enemy outside and the enemy inside. And the enemy inside is usually simply mirroring a watered-down or assimilated version of whatever is going on outside the culture, outside the church, rather. So you have this outside enemy, which is this shift to uh, subjectivism, emotionalism, uh, existential nihilism. You can have fun looking those words up. If you don't know what they are, I would encourage you to read a book called The Universe Next Door by James Sire. The first edition came out when I was in seminary. I think the fourth edition is out now. But he says, you know, the person lives next door to you that's a Buddhist or the guy who lives on the other side of you that's a that's a that's a scientist, that's a Darwinist, they look at the universe differently from you. And if you're going to be able to communicate with them or understand their framework, then you need to understand the universe next door. That's the idea of the of the topic. Understand and so it's a worldview catalog and it's it's very helpful to to work to work through uh, those kinds of ideas. But all of this impacts contemporary contemporary ideas in music and meaning, which are very important to understanding and interpreting anything. So we have that enemy on the outside, but it's reflected on the inside. And you could go through, and maybe someday I'll take time to do this because no one's ever done it. It really needs to be done. It's to sort of trace how from, from almost, you could go starting in 1960, you could go every, every decade or every five years, and you could pick popular contemporary songs from the Beatles or the Who or the Grateful Dead or, or Led Zeppelin or whoever all the way up in, through the 90s into the present. You can pick a lot of different popular songs and then you can go over and find popular Christian songs that sound almost the same. The only difference, they're not using the same tune, but they sound the same. And the only difference is music, is, is the words rather, and so they think that by adding Christian words to, that, to the music, it's okay. And you can baptize the music. Well, we've talked about this and that music reflects a world view. Let's raise some questions in some people's minds, which I've postponed answering until uh, today. The first question that I want to answer is one that came in by email, and somebody asked, well, in light of all of this, is it improper... To, are wrong to listen or play all, I want to emphasize that word in the question, all secular music. What is the criteria? What is the biblical basis for this issue? Now, what I'm getting at here is, and that what I've got, gotten in the last few weeks, is that secular music does have a worldview behind it. And you need to be aware of what that worldview is. And obviously... There are some kinds of music and some songs with certain kinds of lyrics that I think you would understand from just applying basic doctrine is that this runs completely counter to any Christianity. You really don't want those messages uh, rattling around inside of your head. I'm not going to tell you what they are. That's between you and the Lord. And as you grow and as you mature and study the Word, you're going to come to an understanding of some of those things, just like some of the things you might you might read. Sometimes I'm just appalled at what some 
some Christians will read and promote. I know a pastor, doctrinal pastor in this town who read Bridges of Madison County 10 years ago and started recommending that everybody knew to read it, that it was such a wonderful book. And I thought, my gosh, I thought you knew more about literature than that. It's poorly written and it glorifies adultery. And here's a, here's a pastor who's just sucked into contemporary worldview uh, approach and doesn't even know it. And is not only that, but he's telling people that. Should, and, and this raises questions like, uh, you get all kinds of things like the Buddhism and New Age movement that's expressed in the Star Wars movies. Now, as a Christian, we can approach this in one of three ways. The first way is we can say, I don't want to have anything to do with the world around me, so I'm going to run off and join a monastery. I won't listen to any music. I'm not going to watch any TV. I'm not going to go to any, any, any films. I'm not going to read any books because, by gosh, something might just leak in. And rather than think and rather than use critical evaluating skills and understand the world around me so that as a, as a believer interested in, in taking the gospel to my lost culture, I'm just going to isolate myself, myself as a monk. And so there's the ascetic response. Then there's the other response. Well, you know, we're all part of the world, and so we just have to get along. Nobody wants to think we're weird. Good night. Who, you know, if we really promote Christianity, all my neighbors are going to think I'm just, I'm just weird if I don't watch certain movies or if I don't listen to certain kinds of music or do certain things. So the other extreme is what I would call just thinking the culture is neutral and just non-thinking, non-critically immersing yourself in the culture just like everybody else. And that, of course, is what's happening to a lot of people, and that's why a lot of Christians are completely ineffective in are completely ineffective in doing that. You know, I got a great slide I developed on that. Let me uh, let me pull this up because this is going to mean something to just about uh, all of you that are here. I can pull this up right here. This is a slide that was originally developed by Charlie Clough, and I've sort of modified it a little bit. What we have here is the amoeba illustration. The yellow circle there is the biblical truth or doctrine that you've been taught and that you've understood. And the black mass around this is this is the human viewpoint, cultural orientation of your soul. And this is what happens so often is that when a biblical truth or doctrine is understood, what happens is the pagan worldview that's in your soul envelops it and just sort of absorbs it and in, and in very subtle ways rationalizes it and recasts it in ways that make your life more comfortable so that your, your unbelief of the pagan worldview in your soul reinterprets and absorbs the doctrine within its own categories, isolating it and neutralizing it. And next thing you know, we're, our life's not going quite the way we thought doctrine would take it. We say, well, doctrine doesn't work. Well, that's because you have inadvertently been uh, rationalizing the Word of God and recasting it within your own uh, human viewpoint framework. And that is very much, very much problem and very typical. We all do it. I'm not, I'm not, um, uh, judging anybody on that. I'm just saying that is something that every one of us is prone to do because that's the thrust of the sin nature. 
the cosmic system, the worldliness that exists around us, is a system of thinking that is designed to help our sin nature uh, justify itself and make life work apart from dependence upon God. And when we think about the concept of worldliness, and I've used a number of different definitions, one of the ultimate things we need to realize is that one of the purposes of human viewpoint thinking is to give us a rationale for making sin comfortable and make righteousness seem strange. Think about that. It's design, it helps us to stay in our comfort zone of our sin nature rather than stepping out on the unique position of the Word of God. So when we ask the question, well, is it proper to listen to all secular music? Well, I think the word all is important. Some is okay. There's some music that's better than others. Uh, some words are better than others. But what's important is, and, and you could add this to, um, to art. Some people have said, well, you know, if I listen to what you said about art, I can't enjoy my impressionist. I love uh, Monet, or I love Cezanne, or I love this particular music and that particular music. I'm not saying you can't appreciate them. I'm trying to help you understand how to appreciate them. We can go and we can understand where they're coming from, what the thought issues were that impacted their thinking. And this applies to musicians, it applies to movies, it applies to all kinds of things. We can, we can appreciate the craftsmanship that's there. We can appreciate the fact that these unbelievers who are producing this work are in the image of God, and therefore they are, they are creating as God created. And we can appreciate their creativity as reflecting that, that imageness. And we can also appreciate the fact that they're wrestling with trying to explain meaning and purpose in life. And we can see the tension that is in the fallen human heart that doesn't have an ultimate reference point in the person of God. We can appreciate how they use texture and how they use light and, we can, and the colors and all of these things without, here's the key point, without getting sucked into their worldview. Okay, so it's not an issue of going away from it all. It's not an issue of just making it all neutral, uh, making just, just swimming around in it all the time. It is an issue of recognizing how the, the current culture, the human viewpoint of the current culture is, is uh, displayed in all of these things so that we can come to them and not get sucked into or get absorbed or be influenced by the pagan existential nihilistic postmodern relativistic worldview that's there. In other words, you have to think. We can't just go through life just sort of emoting about Jesus, which is what most people want to do because most people are intellectually lazy. So I think that... That answers one question. Another question was, well, what about when we go to these passages in Scripture that talk about music, such as uh, when Miriam and the, the, the women, in, in, at, and I think it was in Ezekiel 14, when they have been rescued from Egypt and they're singing the song of praise and they're using tambourines and timbrels and stringed instruments and, and tambourines are mentioned several times. And what about that? We do that today. Well, let's stop a minute. Number one, we're not absolutely sure what those instruments were. It 
It's translated tambourine, or in some cases timbrel, because it was some kind of instrument that had bells that, that made a noise. So we bring that over and translate tambourine because that's similar and it makes some sense to us. But we're not absolutely sure from a scholarly sense what those instruments were. Number two, just because your frame of reference is that tambourines are used in some kind of uh, loose, informal, in, informally structured manner doesn't mean that's how it was used then. You can think of very formal uh, Japanese uh, ceremonies or other Asian ceremonies, mid, mid, uh, Middle Eastern uh, cultural ceremonies, where things like this are used as punctuation. It's very structured. It's very orderly. Uh, just because your frame of reference, and the same thing with dancing that you have in the Old Testament, just because your frame of reference of an individual dancing is somebody who's just out on the dance floor dancing around doing whatever he wants to do whenever he feels like it doesn't mean that's what's being expressed in the text. There can be very formal, structured uh, dances that involve uh, leaping and twirling. You can think of a, of a ballet when David is dancing before the Lord and, and uh, Michal, his wife, then later, I think somewhat sarcastically and may not be correct, accuses him of being a little bit immodest uh, because he was simply wearing an ephod. And there are a number of scholars of that passage who, who believe that she is really being hyperbolic and she's exaggerating simply because she's mad and jealous of David. And so that, that it was, it's, it, it's not to be understood that he w- was just uh, completely out of control, sort of mindlessly gyrating out in front of the, uh, out in front of the ark. So, see, what happens is our worldview in terms of our frame of reference of the kind of dancing and music that is contemporary today, it, we often use that and read it back into the text without a proper understanding of what was going on in the historical Context. Another thing I want to point out as we go through this is that I don't want you to get the idea that I'm being legalistic about this or that you should be legalistic about this and, and have a, an inappropriate response that way toward, toward music. We can have a lot of fun with some kinds of Christian music in its right context. Kids at camp uh, are going to sing a lot of fun songs that have doctrinal content, biblical messages, and some of this just a little bit, uh, maybe not totally right on target, but it's fun, like Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho or uh, Noah's Ark song or some things like that. And within that context, that's not wrong or inappropriate. We can have fun with things like that. The thing I'm primarily focusing on here is what is involved in corporate worship in the meeting of the local church when the focal point of the meeting of the local church is the exposition of the word of God where the congregation is expected to concentrate and to think and follow a somewhat sophisticated train of logic and knowledge and explanation of the word so that they can go new places with their thinking that they haven't haven't been before, and of course we fight a lot of cultural things that way because most of you don't realize it, but you've really been uh, culturally programmed for 10-minute concentration periods followed by a commercial. That's why a lot of really popular speakers 
will, will teach for about 20 minutes at the max, and then and they put a lot of humor and jokes right in the middle, because that fits the concentration. That's why people don't come and listen to me, is because I don't do that, because you're going to have to learn to grow up and think, or otherwise we'll never figure out what the Word of God says or how it applies to our lives, because it's it's not that simple. God gave us the Word so that we would be forced to go in and and think about it. Well, what I want to do this morning, if we can have the time to wrap up this study, is to focus a little bit now on the lyrics. Now, that's not as much of a battle, at least theoretically speaking, as the music is. That's why I spent more time on the music. Because most people, at least at a theoretical level, would say, oh, of course the the words need to be biblically correct and the words need to uh, focus on, on God. And you'll find even a number of contemporary Christian worship leaders who say these kinds of things, and then you go and you listen to what they've done, and you think, well, there's a big disconnect. Uh, they really aren't say- They know the right things to say, and there's, I think there's a certain amount of disingenuousness here, and there are worship leaders who have... Uh, come out of this whole thing who say, yes, you're right, there is disingenuousness there. There is a specific agenda in many churches to come in and go with some of the moderate contemporary music, and then once the, the camel's nose gets under the tent, then they're in trouble, and you know, six, six weeks later, the choir's gone, the uh, song leader is gone, and they've got a couple of electric guitars and a, and, and a set of drums, and uh, a couple of lead singers with tambourines up there leading the new worship, and it's all contemporary. And that's usually what happens. And, and there's one man who's written a book. Uh, Dan Lucarini wrote a book called Confessions of a Former Worship Leader. And it's quite interesting to get a little insight into uh, what goes on in all of this. So the point I'm making is simply that music must be carefully evaluated because it impacts our emotions, but we have to understand the words. Everything must ultimately be be handled by the words, and the real quality of worship isn't, uh, we don't evaluate it on the basis of how it makes us, us feel. I want to read a little quote out of a, this was a Baptist publication, just to give you a little flavor of, of uh, how subjectivity enters into this. This writer says that, uh, he's talking about how we have a dead worship in many churches today. He says, David's ability to enter into genuine worship. Now, right there, I highlight that phrase. One of the reasons I'm doing this, folks, is I want you to learn how to think critically about what you read and what you hear. We have to develop critical thinking skills based on doctrine. He says, uh, David's ability to enter into genuine worship and praise was connected to his restoration from backsliding. No Christian can have a real, highlight this, no Christian can have a real worship experience while allowing known sin to reign in his life. Now some of you say, well, you know, you can't worship God unless you're, you're in fellowship. That's, he's saying more than that. You know, there, that's the trouble with a lot of this is there's some truth to what he's saying, but there's also a mix of error in uh, what he is, he is saying. He, say, he goes on to say, and you, you have to understand the context, he says, we've already seen from this psalm, must be Psalm 51, that backsliding costs the believer his joy 
in the Lord and enjoyment of spiritual things, and that's true. Now, we see that real worship is an impossibility until repentance and revival takes place. See, now he's added all kinds of works and religiosity to it. That's what he means when he talks about not having a real worship experience while allowing known sin to reign in your life. It's not just enough to confess your sins to be in fellowship. There has to be repentance, he means emotion, and revival that that takes place. And uh, he says that the reason that most Sunday morning worship services are, are dull, and he quotes Vance Havner, who's was the uh, popular preacher of a previous generation, said that most Sunday morning worship services begin at 11 sharp and end at 12 dull. (laughs) See, it's catchy phrases like that. And we've all been at churches that are that way. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that, that it's just the doctrinal orientation isn't there. It's not the music. It's not how the, although I've had trouble at some churches just getting, I don't, never had this trouble with Alan. But I have had this trouble in some churches. I'll go in and they'll be leading the singing. And I'm going, are we at a funeral? You know, let's pep this up. It, it should go a little faster. Think about the message of the words. This is, there's, there's some joy and excitement going on here. And you're taking a song that should be sung about half, uh, again, faster than you're singing it. And now you've made it dull and you've turned it into uh, a, a lament and a dirge. And, and that's true. And a lot, of peop- a lot of people, it's just poor worship. But it isn't because of the kind of singing, and that's where this guy eventually goes with it, but he blames it on the fact that we've just got to, uh, that, that traditional worship is inherently carnal. They say that. So we have to look at the lyrics. And I want to do that by looking at a, briefly at a couple of psalms. And I want you to notice something, just, just as background. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 22. David, according to Psalm School found at Qumran, David composed 364 songs to be sung at the altar with daily sacrifices. That's a lot more than we have in our psalm book. He composed 52 songs to accompany the Sabbath offerings throughout the, the year and an additional 30 songs for the New Moon festivals and other festivals. Solomon, according to... Uh, First Kings composed over a thousand songs, including, what's the most obvious song that Solomon, just to see if anybody's thinking, what's Song of Solomon? What is that? You have the shepherd lover, you have the Shunammite woman, you have a chorus of the daughters of Jerusalem. How would that be expressed? That's sort of like an opera. That's what the whole book is. See the value that the Bible places on music and singing. One reason I want to emphasize that, it's been interesting for me in the last month or so, and it goes back even further than that, a couple of months, that as we have uh, experimented with Skype and broadcasting the audio of the entire Sunday morning worship service over the Internet, and now we're doing streaming video, and that goes from just about five minutes before class until, until class is over, so that the congregational singing and the choir singing are all broadcast, we're getting a number of requests from people saying, what hymnal are you using? We want to sing along. I mean, almost everybody's coming up with that. One lady emailed in and said, I want to know what hymnal you're using. I'm just here by myself, but I want to sing with you. This is fabulous. I've never been able uh, to do this with other believers. And what uh, richness this is adding to my Sunday morning worship now. 
I mean, isn't this fabulous? See, those of us who come and have face-to-face in a local church and are used to this to kind of take this a little bit for granted, but there are people in isolated pockets around the world that have been, the only kind of truth they can get is listening to a tape recorder, and there's no corporate involvement or corporate worship or corporate singing, and they really miss it, and they value it. And they may not be great singers, but they want to, they recognize the importance of singing. Well, God gave us a standard for for singing, and it's called the Book of Psalms. There are many other psalms and poetry in the scriptures, but the Book of Psalms was the collected hymn book for the nation Israel. Now, there's no music there, but it gives us a standard, a divinely inspired criterion for understanding what the words should be in a hymn or song of praise. And all I want to do today, we're not going to exegete through these things, but I want you to understand how the words flow and how they direct your thinking toward a doctrinal goal, okay? Because that's what a hymn should do. It should be taking you through various different doctrines, weaving them together so that our thinking our concentration on God and what he has done, who he is, all these different aspects aspects are brought together. So we'll look first at just Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a lament psalm. Now, lament psalms had, had four categories to them. These were complex works of poetry. They, they weren't something that somebody just sat down and, and, and spun out in a hurry. Now, David may have or Solomon may have, but there's a lot of thought that goes into the structure of these words. The Hebrews didn't rhyme words, they rhymed ideas. Sometimes you have synonymous parallelism where the two lines mirror one another. They basically say the same thing in other words. Sometimes it's antithetical parallelism where one is the contrast to the one following. Sometimes the second line expands the idea of the first line. But usually you have these four elements in a lament psalm. There's an introductory cry to God. That's the first 10 verses of Psalm 22. Then there is a lament. This is where the, the writer is expressing his, uh, at the adversity, the problems, the difficulties he's facing in life. Then as he goes through his lament, he begins to focus more on the character of God. And there's a tone shift there. And you'd think that that would be radically reflected in the music as he goes from talking about how all the enemies are against me, I'm overwhelmed, I'm just backed into a corner, no one loves me but you, God. You would think the, the words have to drive a, a musical shift at that time because the focus goes from the problem to the source of the solution, which is God. And there's a confession of trust followed usually with a petition or prayer. Let's just hit a couple of those high points. This is a familiar messianic psalm in Psalm 22. It starts off with this, Cry. You have actually two sections in the first ten verses. The opening cry out to God in the first two verses, uh, followed by a, a historical rehearsal of who God is, what he has done. Then there, in verse 6, you go back to the problem and the cry to God again, and then there is a, a confidence section. All of this is in the opening uh, introductory cry. But listen how the words of the hymn, that's what it is, Listen how the words of the hymn carry your thinking along. You have to think about what's, what's, what's going on here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and, and from the words of my groaning? Now, 
the, David is saying these things prophetically, and Jesus Christ quotes this whole psalm on the cross, but, but it's coming out of a historical context of David's own life. And then the Holy Spirit is, applies it prophetically later on. Verse 2, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. You, you, you feel the, the helplessness of the writer, and he's overwhelmed by the circumstances of his life, and then he shifts the focus. And think about what the music would have to do if you were composing music to fit this. He's talking about how, my God, why have you left me? Why is there silence? Why don't you solve my problem? And then, but you, O oh God, you are holy. You were enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and you were delivered. They trusted in you and you were not ashamed. See, the music needs to support that, that shift in focus. And then he comes back to himself, but I am a worm. I know man. A, a reproach of men. Oh, woe is me. Everybody hates me. See, he's on the verge of just total self-absorption and self-pity here. And God's not saying anything to him. He says, all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, hey, he trusted in God. Let God rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And then he comes back to his confidence in God. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. And then there's a shift. Oh, verse 10. The shift is in 11. I was cast upon you from birth from my mother's womb. You have been my God. And then he starts to focus on the lament itself. Be not far from me. My trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Notice the detail in how he is expressing in, in very vivid uh, terms the imagery here of, of his adversity and how he just feels overwhelmed. But the self-pity is leaving. It says, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. I'm at the, I'm at the end of my rope, Lord. My strength is drying up like a potsherd. He goes on like that. For the interest of time, I want to just skip down to the petition. This is where he develops that confidence again. He says, but you, O Lord, do not do, be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. This is the petition. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild ox. You have answered me. Now he shifts to the praise. For I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. Notice the focus on God being a very present help in time of trouble. What I want you to understand by just reading this, and this is a long psalm, but I want you to see it's structured. The words take you in a direction. There's resolution in the words themselves, and they resolve in a statement of declarative praise to God. Now, declarative praise is another kind of psalm, and I want you to turn to Psalm 113. This is also set up for next week. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 is a collection of psalms that were called in the Jewish uh, hymn book the Halal Psalms. Halal means praise. These were the praise psalms. They were sung at the special feasts and festivals, specifically at Passover. Next week we're going to 
have Resurrection Sunday and do a Passover. Before Passover, they would usually sing Psalm 113 and 114. And then after Passover, when it was over with, they would sing Psalm 115 through Psalm 118. Note the disciples, when, they, when the disciples and Jesus left the upper room after celebrating the Lord's table, what did they do? They sang a hymn. That's what they were singing, was these halal psalms. Now, uh, I read 115 earlier, but I want to just look at 113. It's a simple declarative praise psalm. So, uh, verses 1 through 3 give us the call to praise, and verses 4 through 9 give us the cause to praise. Now, the cause call to praise is a command to people to praise God. Now, what's happened in our superficial world today is people run around saying praise God and hallelujah as if those phrases have substance to them in themselves and they're so overused that they lose any meaning. What you have in the Hebrew is the word hallel, which is the verb to praise, and it's in the second person plural imperative, which means y'all praise. It is a command to people to praise God and hallelujah, that Yah is the first syllable in the name of God, Yahweh, the sacred uh, tetragrammaton. So it is a command to praise God. You don't praise God by saying praise God. Praise God is a command to praise God. How do you praise God? Well, let's see. Praise the Lord, he says, a command to the congregation. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord, that is, his character. It's focus on who God is. Uh, blessed be the name of, of, of Yahweh from this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its going down. Yahweh's name is to be praised. That's our call to praise. And then you have the cause to praise. Why should we praise God? Why should we do this? Why do we come together and praise God? Because he, number one, verse four, because Yahweh is high above all the heavens. His glory above the heavens. He's the creator. Who is like the Lord, or like Yahweh our God, who dwells on high? The uniqueness of God in verse 5. 6, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and the earth. God is a God who is intimately involved in his creation. He's not a deist God who's set the watch going and then walked away somewhere. He is a God who is intimately involved, who condescends and humbles himself to his creatures and he knows and pays attention to what's going on in our lives. That's what he is saying. Why should we praise God? Because he's just not this big God that's out there, but he cares about each one of us individually, and he's intimately involved in our lives. He humbles himself to look into the things of his creation. He gives two examples. The first relates to God's care for the impoverished. Verse 7, he raises the poor out of the dust he lifts the needy out of the ash heap often those who these are the homeless in a sense that God cares about us when we go through those crises that leave us uh, destitute no matter what the cause may be the second is he lifts them up that they may seat with princes and with the princes of his people and then uh, verse 9 the barren woman he grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children, That, of course, goes back to the barren mothers of Israel, Sarah, uh, Rebecca, and Rachel. So there's a call to praise and a cause to praise. Now, 
I got to finish this because we can't leave it here. Because I've set a, I set a trap for you, as it were, and we got to we got to go all the way through this thing. It'll take about ten more minutes. Think about the content of what I have read to you, and you can go back and you can do this at home. I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. That is our model. That's the standard of how the content of song should go. Now, I want to read a couple of hymns that we sing to you. And I thought I'd give you a sort of a contrast between a couple of different things. Uh, one is one that, that we've been singing for the last uh, year or so. It's on the inside front cover of your hymnal. It was written by uh, James Deck, who was a Plymouth Brethren. A lot of Plymouth Brethren wrote some good hymns in the 19th century. And it is a meditation on the ascension and session of Christ. Now, when we sing this, this is powerful. The words to this, all these pastors that came last week wanted to take copies of this home with them because it was such a great, great message in the words. Son of God, you now are seated high above, high upon your Father's throne. Isn't that great? He's not on his throne. This is dispensational. He's not on the David's throne. He's on the Father's throne. All your gracious work completed. How Protestant. It's not ongoing. All your mighty victory won. Salvation is complete. Every knee in heaven is bending to the Lamb for sinners slain. That's Revelation 5. That's why we're singing this a lot right now. Every voice and heart is swelling. Worthy is the Lamb to reign. That's Revelation 5. Look at the third verse. Jesus, Lord, your faithful promise says, Behold, I quickly come. Where do we read that? Revelation. It's focusing on, on the future. Behold, I quickly come. And our hearts to yours responsive cry, Come, Lord, and take us home. Oh, the, I love the double entendre here. Oh, the rapture that awaits us. When we meet you in the air, pre-trib rapture. Isn't that fabulous? You don't find that in every hymn. You don't find that in any hymn. And with you, as a, with you ascend in triumph all your deepest joys to share. Lamb of God, when you in glory shall to this sad earth return, second coming, all your foes shall quake before you. All who now despise you mourn. Then shall we at your appearing with you in your kingdom reign. Yours the praise and yours the glory, Lamb of God, for sinners slain. Notice how that takes you through all these different doctrines we've been studying for the last several years. And it forces you to think and concentrate, and the whole focus is on who Jesus Christ is and what he is doing. I mean, this is fabulous worship. Now, Turn over to hymn number 382. 382. Now, focus of this hymn is on what what many of us would call occupation with Christ, a focus on the Lord as the focal point of everything in our life. It's a prayer. And notice how the tune... Sally, why don't you come on up? Notice how the tune on this fits the words. Now, different tunes fit different words. Uh, Some tunes are marches, and some of them are waltzes, and some of them are slower, some of them are faster, but they're to enhance what is being said in the words. There's a lot of songs that are sung today that words really don't fit fit the, the mood that is set by the words themselves. But I want you to listen to the words here. It's a prayer to God. Be thou my vision, 
the focal point of my life, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, may nothing else be to me what you are. Keep me from idolatry, from worshiping other things, from being distracted by the details of life. Thou, my best thought, by day or by night, walking, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Second verse says, Be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word. I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great Father, I thy true Son, thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. We are to be one with each other. It's talking about unity. It's not talking about uh, the, uh, some sort of ontological unity, unity there. Play the music a little bit, just the first couple of lines. See how the music complements the words. It's, it's, it's not a distraction. Now, just for comparison and contrast sake, I want you to just turn the page. Here's a contemporary chorus that's been written with the same idea of focusing on the Lord. Listen to the words. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. The other verse is saying, I want to think about you. So that I can, my contemplation of you drives me to a greater understanding and appreciation of, of who you are. Here, you know, let's skip the hard thinking word. Just open my eyes and drop it in front of me. Open our eyes. We want to see Jesus to reach out and touch him. See, we're not going to do that in this life. We want, to, we, we learn him through a contemplation of doctrine and the, the scriptures and thinking them through and correlating scripture with scripture and building theology, that's how we understand, and that's the depth that's in the, the Be Thou My Vision hymn. But here it's just open our eyes and help us to listen. It's all about you doing everything for me because I'm too lazy to do anything about my spiritual life. Just sort of make it happen for me. And it's all self-centered. It's not theocentric or Christocentric. And, and this is often typical of today. Then we have the hymn we're going to close with, number 415. And think about those words, He giveth more grace when the burden grows greater. And this is tremendous content. I've forgotten about this hymn, frankly, and last week when I emailed uh, my dear friend Jim Myers about the good news about uh, Pam's biopsy, the, the words of this hymn was what he sent back to me. You know, now that's great. That's that's how Christians encourage one another, and and it we've lost this in the church today. Sometimes I I try to shock you and say, how many of you can can think of a hymn that you would go to 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 give somebody in an answer to something like that? How many of you that when you're driving down the road could? Uh, uh, thanks, Sally. How many of you when you're driving down the road are going to be able to uh, think of a hymn? that helps you focus your attention uh, on Christ and God, on grace, on that if you, you're struggling in prayer, hymns help us. They're, they're aids in our focus on God. They don't replace Scripture, but they encaps, good hymns encapsulate, encapsulate Scripture. Now, we live in an age today where there, there's this shift, and I want to do one last thing in terms of a contrast, that what we have today is these, these praise courses. I want to give you just a couple of examples of what is happening today as we wrap up this, this study. This is a, 
Very popular praise chorus, I'm told. Singing a lot of Dallas Seminary, I'm told, and other schools. I'm not picking on Dallas. I'm just saying this is how this is just, it, it's everywhere. The heart of worship. Let me read the words to you. When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the ways things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, all about you, and that's repeated endlessly, all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, all about you, Jesus, kind of king of endless worth, no one could express how much you deserve, though I'm weak and poor and all I have is yours every single breath. Now, there's some good thoughts there, but it's, it's compare that to what we just thought through in terms of, of, of those great hymns and the Psalms. See how shallow it is. See how self-focused it is. It's about me. I want to impress you, God, with what I'm bringing to you. And this is one of the very popular songs that is out there. And I'll give you a little sense of what this... When the music fades, all is stripped away. Think about what's happening to your concentration and what we've been doing for the last hour with this music. It just poses it. Okay, and that's the music. Now, you go to a website and find out why he wrote this. Why did he write it? He wrote it because he was in a church. It was a praise and worship church. And, and as they had gone from the, a couple of praise singers and praise band with the tambourines and guitars and everything, they kept adding more. And they, because what they needed, they would get kind of bored with what they had. So in order to re-energize so they wouldn't get into that dead worship thing, they had to add more. And they kept focusing so much on all the technicalities of getting everything right and adding the speakers and the sound and all of that to make sure we had this, this what they would consider great, great worship. All of a sudden they realized they were getting, they, they still kept reaching these plateaus of boredom, basically. So the pastor of his church said, okay, let's get rid of all the instruments, all the sound, everything. We're just going to come bring nothing but ourselves to worship Jesus. What are they doing? Worship, whether you have all the instruments or none of them, is being driven by technique. And that's what I'm saying about the music. They're using music for technique to drive it. And the music eventually, not not necessarily in everything, but eventually can eat up the words. And what happens is we like this music. Most of us are baby boomers. And we like this music. And what happens is we start rocking and moving with the music because it really grabs you. And I want you to listen to this. I'm going to put the words up here and then talk about it in a minute. Celtic, kind of a popular thing today. Starts off very simple. Listen to how this is going to grow. So it'll add more, more music. It's kind of a, uh, I forgot about this. It's, uh, it adds. I want you to pay attention to how you feel 
when this music starts going. They're having praise and worship back in the sound room. Notice that fuller orchestra, you're being drawn into this thing. And, it, and it's visceral, you feel it in your body. Sounds biblical, doesn't it? So you want to tap your toes, clap your hands, get into it. Your mind is trying to relate the words to your experience, isn't it? That's a trap. Don't let that happen. It's sucking you in. It almost sounds pre-trip. It's not. I want to make the point of what's going to happen in a minute. This is really key to this whole thing. This isn't prophetic. He's talking about right now, 2007. These are the days of Ezekiel. And the dry bones aren't Israel being regathered. That's the church moving toward an end-time revival. Pure revivalism and post-millennialism. This whole thing grows out of a heresy called the reign of the the new order of the latter reign that was declared heresy by the assemblies of God in 1939. It's come back in a big way. Notice it gets fuller and it ramps up. Now it's going to make a whole step movement in a minute. Catch this. Listen. Like a mantra. Oh, Hindu. No resolution. You know, I'm talking about resolution, bring it to a point. Just this over and over again. They could shift the words here to Satanist lyrics, and you're still going to be with it, aren't you? Totally destroys your concentration. I want to go through all 12 of these. Ramped it up a whole step just to suck you in. Okay. See how that music just destroyed your concentration? That's my point. Now, they sing this. Tommy was telling me about this. They sing this at Liberty. 
Now, because most of you, and I, I'm not, I don't mean this to sound like you're stupid and dumb and ignorant, but most of us are so ignorant of charismatic theology that you think all it is is speaking in tongues. But it isn't. It's inherent in revivalism. There was this terminology called the latter rain. They thought the former rains was the Holy Spirit coming at the day of Pentecost, and the latter rains is this new infusion of the Holy Spirit that must come at the end of the age before the rapture comes, and that we have to bring this in, and then the church will be militant. It's a resurrection of what they call Joel's army. And, I mean, I could go on on this. I got into this when I was doing doctoral research on the vineyard movement back in the, back in the late 80s. And I remember in 1990, Tommy and I went up, to, uh, went up to Kansas City for a pastor's conference, so we dropped in on the Kansas City Prophets over at the Kansas City Vineyard. And we interviewed these guys. And... Um, you know, there's just a couple of things that, that uh, I was going to point out. They, they all come out of Latter Rain doctrine. Latter Rain first emerged in the early Pentecostal movement. It was pretty much shunted aside with some heresy ideas. It returned in 47 and 48 with the healing revivals, people like Oral Roberts. There was this guy named William Branham who was dull as dirt until the demons started coming in. And he would see, you know, lights and special and call people down by name. I mean, it's bizarre stuff. And um, also one of the young guys at that time was a guy named Paul Kane. He sort of went off the scene for a while, and I happened to be at the vineyard in Anaheim at the Mama Church at a spiritual warfare conference doing worship when this guy came out of the blue again. And I was sitting there the next night. I was sitting there one night when this allegedly happened. The next night he's talking about how these blue lights appeared, and the Holy Spirit came as blue lights and, and hovered over people, and he knew what God was going to do to those people, and it blew the, fa- the phone system, and it blew out the electronics, and I thought, I don't remember that. But Paul Kane came along, and he brought all this back, and it, it infused the vineyard movement. Now, why is that important? Because vineyard is the second largest music label in contemporary Christian music, and most of this contemporary stuff, you don't know it, this, this, this tabernacle of David... Uh, this terminology about Elijah. See, for them, Elijah's spirit is supposed to return as a sign of the end days so the church militant can bring about this great revival. It's, it's almost post-millennial. They'll talk about the rapture, but it's, it's very, very uh, in, inconsistent. You have uh, this terminology, these are the days of Elijah. Why? They're, 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 one more thing. Let me back up. There's no connect between these phrases. Remember that logical order we saw in the hymns we studied? These are the days of Elijah declaring the word of the Lord. These are the days of your servant Moses, righteousness being restored. What's the connection here? There isn't any. It's just these disconnected phrases related to biblical people with religiously loaded words like revival and restoration. Everybody thinks they're seeing something great. And like Tommy said, they sing it up at Liberty all the time. He says, this thing is anti-dispensational and premillennial, and they're not charismatic, and they don't realize the words are sucking you into a theological system. Okay, we're out of time. I know that I've gone over. You had a little fun with this in a couple of places, but I want you to come out of this with an understanding of what singing and worship is all about and how important it is that the words and the music fit together and the focus is on God, his work, and what he has done in history because it is to reinforce 
our own, the doctrine that we have learned and our own orientation uh, to the Word. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for your magnificent grace in giving us your Word and salvation, complete salvation. Uh, we thank you and praise you because of all that you have done in history as we see your works in history from the fall in the garden up to the present time. We know you are a real God, a God who humbles himself into the lives and events of his creatures, that we can come to you in prayer and in praise. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain about their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, trusting him only for your eternal salvation, not works, not morality, not religion, but trusting in Christ as the all-sufficient Savior. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.